Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today, I have the pleasure of featuring not merely a book, but a body of scholarship and a fascinating figure uh, behind that body of scholarship, uh, Dr. Dagma Vujastic, uh, who is Associate Professor uh, in the Department of History, Classics, and Religion um, at University of Alberta. Uh, Dagmar, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Raj. Pleasure to be here. So you study something, I think, by all accounts, it's fascinating. What is it that you study? What is it that I study? Well, I study many different things, but uh, in recent years, my focus has been on Indian alchemy or Rasavada. So this sort of Rasa Shastra is another name for it. So the Indian alchemical tradition that focuses on the uses of mercury for spiritual, religious, and also mundane aims. And this, would it be safe to say that you are interested in uh, the broader context of of, uh, indigenous Indian paradigms of healing, medicine, Ayurveda? Oh, absolutely. Actually, um, so, you know, by training, I'm an Indologist. So I studied in in Germany, in Bonn, and we just, you know, learned about ancient India through its literature, mostly. So it was sort of philological studies. And uh, even, you know, for my MA, I started working on the Ayurvedic tradition, the Indian medical tradition, and sort of Sanskrit texts of that tradition. And that has stayed with me. So I've been working on that for, for decades now. Um, and so even my my interest in alchemy really started through Indian medicine, through um, formulations in Indian medicine that came from the outside and that now I see uh, were influenced by the alchemical tradition. What prompted or inspired this interest? You know, what's the genesis of this, of this career trajectory of yours? Of Indology, just study Indology or or Indian medicine and alchemy. Either either generally or specifically, but more more you recall your your interest in in Indian medicine and alchemy. Yeah. So when I studied at Bonn, you know, we were looking at texts a lot, and um, 
And my professor then, the, the main professor in Bonn, Klaus Vogel, he, one of his uh, special research areas was in fact Indian medicine, and he had done some translations. He was also a Tibetologist, so he'd done sort of comparative studies. And uh, so that was why I started looking at medical texts. And I was looking particularly at a, at a chapter on, on pregnancy and birth. And I, I was sort of interested in seeing a different way of, you know, sort of characterizing or showing or debating what women are in, in some sense, you know, sort of a different attitude to women, sort of the, the woman in ancient India through the physician's gaze, as it were. And uh, yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting chapter to, to look at. Um, and that really started my my interest in Indian medicine. And then, you know, reading about it, uh, finding out that the Ayurvedic tradition still exists in India and has been practiced throughout the millennia, that some of the practices that I was, you know, reading in a Sanskrit text and translating are still there, that there are families who uh, are using the exact text that I was translating. That was just very fascinating to me. And so, um, so then I, I continued this work on Indian medicine, really sort of visiting India, visiting practitioners and so on and just finding out more about about this really fascinating multifaceted tradition so then um just just to uh to clarify you studied both uh ancient indian sanskrit texts as well as lived traditions correct yes so i mean you know i'm not an anthropologist so i don't have formal training for doing field work and so you know these are just sort of visiting india meeting people who are part of this tradition talking with them um they very graciously showed me what they were doing and explained many things to me um you know so this was not like formal interviews this was just really going and meeting people and having interesting conversations being brought to various clinics hospitals uh educational institutions and just sort of you know seeing for myself what i could recognize from the texts so you know it's it's a very informal sort of approach to to understanding the tradition i can relate uh, i joke more times that i can count that i'm not sure how i'm not an, an ethnographer but you know our armchair anthropologist at best um perhaps this is what prompted the podcast anyhow um so is is it fair to say that your interest in this tradition and these texts is um, primarily or squarely academic, intellectual, or is there also an interest in um, efficacy and application and in, in healing? Well, so, you know, like I was thinking about how if I get sick, you know, do I do I call an Ayurvedic doctor or do I go to a biomedical doctor? I live in Canada, you know, so, um, you know, biomedicine is, is the thing that's most easily available. But at the same time, uh, I... I have a certain trust in Ayurvedic medications, as it as it were, and it's um, uh, and it's to do really. I think what I've taken on board quite a lot is ideas about lifestyle from prescriptions in Ayurvedic texts, and and these are, you know, things of, of sort of making you know making gentle changes, for example, ideas about uh, nutrition and so on. I wouldn't say that I'm like living the Ayurvedic life by by no means, you know, but there are certain things that make a lot of sense to me. And um, also, of course, you know, following, you know, I've been thinking about this for a good 20 years now, a bit longer. And, you know, I, I can see there are studies that show the efficacy of, of some Ayurvedic treatments in particular, um, things like arthritis and so on, which I, I don't 
have arthritis but I was just sort of thinking of how you know if, if a friend of mine had arthritis I would say to them look you know there's some you know there are Ayurvedic treatments available if you have time uh, you know to go to India and, and get these treatments they they take you know you, you, you can't just go for a you know quick one-week visit and then it's gone and done with but you know if you have the time and the inclination you know this might be helpful to you so I find that sort of attitude you know that, that I, I generally have a friendly attitude towards um, Ayurvedic medicine which does not mean that you know I would always uh, take recourse to it if I myself am ill. Uh, speaking about the availability of uh, how you call uh, biomedical uh, practice and practitioners, thank the gods it's also covered in this great nation of Canada. <laughs> that is very true. It's it's a privilege to have access to medical care. That's for sure. That's it's 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 no small boon. Um, so many, so many, uh, so many uh, points of entry. Could you tell us a bit about your your primary uh, uh, research interest? Um, you know, your 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 dissertation, and then you know more of the nuts and bolts for the specialists who might be listening. Yeah, so uh, for years I wrote about the history of Indian medicine, and my first. Um, monograph uh, there was about the ethics and etiquette, uh, sort of the professional ethics and etiquette in Ayurveda. So, you know, codes of conduct for physicians and so on, as uh, written in the Ayurvedic works, in the Sanskrit medical works. And I was looking at works that span uh, 2000 years. Um, so I was just seeing about things like, you know, um, it's a bit like the Hippocratic Oath or so, but in the Indian context, you know, sort of what what is a physician supposed to do? What are they allowed to do? What are they not allowed to do in um, relation to their um, uh, patients and so on. So that was that was my first sort of uh, monograph um, uh, on on uh, this topic. So the book called Well Mannered Medicine, and then I was uh, starting to look a little bit more into well the question of change in Ayurveda. So a lot of people in the West, when they think of Ayurveda, they think of this sort of unchanging tradition that has you know not just its roots in these ancient treatises, but is still the exact same as described 2000 years ago in the, in the early um, Ayurvedic treatises. However, when you look at Ayurvedic literature and there was very there's a very large body of literature with many works written over the centuries you can see certain changes in this literature and so i was sort of interested in what these changes were and um so a lot of these changes actually happen in the area of uh, pharmacology and uh, one of the big changes that i noticed was the sort of entrance of mercury into ayurvedic medicine so that you know mercury but also you know other materials lead and so on uh, would now be used medicinally um, from about the 10th century and so this this kind of um, this change was something that that i found really interesting and i wrote uh, quite a few articles about that and edited a few um um books about this as well. So the use of mercury in medicine also more widely, because this is a phenomenon that we don't just see in India, and not just in the Ayurvedic tradition, but sort of throughout the world, as it were, and particularly in connection to uh, new uh, diseases like syphilis, for example, that came up and became a problem for the world globally. So we have this sort of global changes in, in medicine and global changes in diseases and so on. And I thought that was a really interesting topic. It's a topic that I hope to dive into directly in a moment, but in passing, you mentioned this fascinating work of looking at uh, the do's and don'ts, the etiquette, the manners, uh, the bedside manner <laughs> of 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 of, um, of of the ancient Indian physician, as it were, or, or Vaidya, I should say. Um, 
what are some of the broad stroke takeaways from that research about what you learned? Well, the almost all of the Ayurvedic works, whether they're very old or more recent, have this scheme of saying there are four pillars of treatment, and it's the physician, the patient, and the medicine, and the attendant, so basically the nurse or whoever is helping, helping out. And uh, all three are, uh, all four rather, have particular roles within any medical situation. And it's clear that there's a hierarchy where the physician kind of gets top billing, as it were, you know, is it the physician most important, but the patient is obviously also very, very important. And so the kinds of things that a physician should be as defined in this sort of four pillars of treatment, um, you can see that there's a very strong emphasis on knowledge and skill. So sort of hard skills as as it were uh, for uh, the physician. So what is valued most in the physician is the ability to do their job, right? But things like compassion and kindness towards the the patient are also there. They're not necessarily part of these uh, definitions of the four pillars of treatment, but you do find them throughout the works as well. So this is certainly also a factor, but knowledge and skill are the two two big areas. And when it comes to the patient, uh, things are valued like obedience uh, to the physician, so compliance. And I think modern doctors will also sort of nod and say, yes, compliance is very important in any uh, medical situation, um, but also wealth. And that's a, that was a, a little bit of a surprise to me. So this sort of insistence upon wealth, and uh, there's several passages that sort of explain that uh, a physician can always diagnose and treat something, but if the patient doesn't have the means to actually, you know, get the medicine, support the lifestyle that they need, you know, get the nutrition that they need, then there's no point in actually doing treatment. So there's a sort of baseline of uh, what a patient needs to bring themselves. Though we also have counter voices to that, like in the seventh century heart of medicine by an author called Vagbata, he says, you always treat every patient because you may be successful, whatever the circumstances you don't know. So then compassion and kindness, again, are the sort of main uh, thing to, to look uh, into for the for the physician. One of the things you stress, so, so there are a variety of folks who engage religion, whether uh, specialists, uh, generalists, uh, laity, devout, um, 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 everything in between. <laughs> um, but one uh, sometimes it's difficult to appreciate while still revering perhaps even the, 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 the timelessness, quote unquote, of a tradition. It's difficult for folks to appreciate its dynamism. And the dynamism isn't take away from tradition. Dynamism, just, you know, and then most scholars are well aware of this, but the dynamism, the ways in which tradition responds to situations over time, really that, that details the strength of tradition. Uh, the, 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 the relevance across time of tradition, the adaptability, the evolution of tradition. So this is a point that, that's, um, that's rich, that, that Ayurveda, even if we take a, a, a traditional view that there are truths that were revealed uh, to the ancient Indic rishis, nevertheless, the application of those truths <laughs> will be different uh, when we now have uh, disease, uh, cancer, for example. You may not have been treating that the same way in the past. And so I find that fascinating. So maybe say, a, a, tell us a bit about what you've learned about the dynamism of Indian medicine, um, and then segue at your convenience into the introduction of uh, mercury and alchemy. Okay, so I think when, when we're just looking at the literature, 
we can see little changes being brought in, but the old truths are usually not challenged, right? So you you still have a sort of respect for what was there before, but you sort of have sort of added on materials, as it were, and sometimes a sort of restructuring um, of how things work. So sort of recategorization. Uh, very often you will see, for example, diseases being recategorized. So um, they are grouped in certain ways. And then you have sort of regroupings uh, over time. So in, uh, for example, the Madhava Nidana, which is a eighth century work on the causes of disease, uh, has this new scheme of, of disease categorization. And then later works follow his scheme rather than the earlier ones by Charaka, Sushruta and so on, by the, by the earlier works. So you have this and it's done sort of quietly as it were. So you don't have a lot of works that say, so by the way, guys, you were wrong and now we're gonna do it this way, but rather there's a sort of, um, you know, an expressed respect for what was before and the knowledge of the rishis and so on. And then a kind of reshuffling of, of things uh, very often. And, you know, also, you know, as new diseases come up, they they get, um, you know, um, interpreted in certain ways differently over time. And then, of course, what kinds of therapies are offered have to be, um, um, you know, adjusted to, you know, success and so on. So like uh, syphilis, for example, there you have, you know, mercurial treatments, and you, you didn't have so many mercury treatments in Ayurveda before, but with this new disease, you also get uh, a new way of, of dealing with the disease. So, you know, these are changes that we can see. We have a very few works where there's sort of a youthful, you know, um, uh, uh, um, taking... Uh, thinking that that maybe the the elders were not quite right, but that's really very uncommon. There's one work called the Roga Roga Vada. I think it's 16th century where he basically says you're all wrong about your your humoral diagnosis and so on, and it doesn't make sense. But this is really an an outlier, I would say. Um, one thing you know, when in the very oldest of the Ayurvedic treatises, um, we have uh, descriptions of basically colloquia, so sort of authorities meeting, experts meeting, and having discussions about certain medical topics, right? And they have sometimes quite different opinions, and we can see these different opinions sort of maybe, you know, different of their time, you know, medical experts having different ways of approaching their medicine. And then, of course, you know, there's the sort of final authoritative uh, opinion that then becomes, you know, the Ayurvedic opinion. But we can see that even in the earliest roots of Ayurveda, there were some different ways of approaching medicine, of understanding things and so on. So, and that carries on, of course. Now, before I talk about Mercury, I just want to say when we come to the 20th century, um, then we, you know, 19th, 20th century, then we see like really big changes. And these big changes um, come about through this sort of uh, meeting with biomedicine. And it's a political meeting, isn't it? Because of the institutionalization of medicine for public health in India, in colonial India through the British government, and then later in independent India through the Indian government. And the sort of question of, you know, how do we treat our people and what does this treatment look like? What does the medicine look like that we're using? And then, you know, at that time, we have this, um, this uh, question uh, among uh, in Ayurvedic milieus of how to represent their own medicine. You know, is it OK to use these uh, very um, you know, old fashioned, these ancient terminologies, or do we now reinterpret them to make sense within a biomedical paradigm that, you know, let's not forget was 
also growing at that time. You know, we're talking early 20th century. Uh, you know, this starts when, uh, you know, there weren't antibiotic yet uh, and so on, you know. So biomedicine was different at that time as well. But there's this sort of linked new understanding of, of Ayurveda, where they're trying to bring in biomedical words, terminologies, and seeing whether they can find some sort of synthesis that would make them more accepted by, uh, you know, uh, for the politics of the institutionalization of Ayurveda. And this continues on. So this goes on till today, of course. And there's lots of discussions about, you know, whether there should be this pure Ayurveda, this Shuddha Ayurveda that just relies on the ancient text, doesn't interpret new biochemical ideas and so on onto it, but just stays with the, the sort of historic roots or whether, you know, there should be this syncretic Ayurveda that takes into account, you know, modern technologies and so on. And um, I would say that the Socratic view uh, seems to have won uh, more or less in modern Ayurvedic education and practice as well. I just find this endlessly fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, I'm lucky for the audience, uh, the podcast features the voice of my guests primarily, um, but I will share a couple of remarks. Um, I just... Um, so in 2021, last year, I guess, compared to the, the date of recording, we're now in 2022, I was hospitalized twice, and this was the first time in my adult life, and then in my 40s now. So I had a number of issues, non-COVID-related, that you can believe it. Um, I had um, three or four different issues cropped up, and just my, my instinct in every cell of my body, so to speak, I could feel that this can't be unrelated. It can't be that everything is going along. It's not that I, you know, I've been having um, you know, drinking binges or whatever. I'm a bit of a teetotaler, frankly. But anyhow, it's not that there was some cause to these must be related. And, and a year and a half later, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to go see an Ayurvedic doctor. And it was the first time... Uh, in, in a long time, really, I think I, I was treated by an Ayurvedic doctor once uh, years ago. And I just told him what I was experiencing. And within two minutes, he says, you have this, it's called this in Western medicine. It's called this in the Shastras. And, and this and this and this, and it leads to this. I'm like, I didn't even tell you about that issue. I didn't want to overburden you. But yes, I've had that too. Right. And it just, it, it was brought into focus and not... Uh, not uh at, not at the expense of or or, or 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 separate from his knowledge of, of western medicine but in addition to the ways in which we understand the body and we treat uh you know using certain protocols he's able to pan out you know pan out to camera two and see it see how these pieces might be connected um and what their underlying causes might be in the body and i've you know, open mind. I've been taking these herbs for not even a month. Symptoms have already started subsiding. And I thought, okay, well, clearly these traditions haven't survived for thousands of years because people are just peddling dogma or delusion, clearly. Uh, at the same time, <laughs> listen, you've got a nasty infection. You need some antibiotics. <laughs> Enough from me, more from you. Tell us about mercury and alchemy. Well, I was just thinking this was a really good story, uh, thinking about, you know, this is my main impression of modern Ayurvedic uh, practitioners, good ones. 
you know, that they're so good at diagnosis and the full diagnosis. And this is something that they take great pride in. And that is also described as one of the hallmarks of the, the ancient Ayurvedic uh, physician, this ability to see, you know, uh, early signs, you know, signs of advanced illness and knowing what will come, you know. And so the, the texts are, are very interesting on, on that topic, I would say. So I'm glad you're having some success. I would say with, with Ayurvedic treatment, there is a certain element of patience, right? So when we take antibiotics, you know, we expect things to happen within one or two days to already start feeling better, right? With Ayurvedic treatments, often you have to you have to wait that month, you have to wait maybe six months and, and you know, but it's supposed to have these long-term effects and especially not to, you know, give you other illnesses as it were, you know, while you're always being accompanied, of course, by the physician who is helping you out uh, with any, any of your reactions to, to the medicines. Yeah, so mercury. Yeah, you were mentioning herbal substances that you were getting. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that Ayurveda has always also had uh, metallic and mineral uh, formulations. Uh, they have always used poisonous substances like arsenic, uh, but also, you know, metals. Um, but it was a, a smaller feature within the classical tradition. So as, you know, um, associated with the, the oldest of the, the treatises. But when we come to the 10th century, we suddenly see more of these substances coming in and then mercury um, joining in. Actually, there's already mention of mercury for internal use in the 7th century in one single recipe as a rasayana, as a sort of um, vitalization tonic in the Ashtanga Hridaya Samhita. That's the, the heart of medicine, very important uh, work of Ayurveda. Um, so... Um, uh, so, but 10th century and forward, we start seeing more of mercury. And of course, you know, we all know that mercury is toxic when we know that lead is toxic and arsenic is toxic and so on. So, you know, there is this sort of, when we, you know, in sort of new age Ayurveda, there's always this sort of emphasis of the, the gentleness of, of Ayurvedic treatments and of, you know, it's all herbal and therefore somehow safe and, you know, but actually Ayurvedic formulations can be uh, very toxic, very strong. When I say very toxic, it's it's not quite right because they use ingredients that are toxic and then they use particular procedures to, um, uh, to well, they say purify, but you could maybe say make fit for use uh, these materials to detoxify them, to make them uh, available, bioavailable, I suppose, um, but also to make them, you know, not uh, uh, poison the patient. And so we see these, both these materials and these new procedures for making medicine start in the 10th century. And this is, you know, not exactly a wholesale adoption from alchemical treatises, but certainly uh, the procedures when it comes to sort of of purifying mercury, making it fit for use to not poison the consumer, that's something that comes from the Sanskrit alchemical treatises or from the alchemical milieus. I um, uh, Thankfully, I also mute myself when my guests are speaking because I was chuckling aloud at, the, at, at I think, the apt um, pointing to, uh, as you call it, more new age caricatures of sort of kumbaya. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, yes, this is also how, you know, I, I do a fair bit of uh, teaching on um, uh, mantra, among other things, uh, at the, the the online school of Indian wisdom. But I, you know, this, this idea that no, uh, you know, I'm doing a mantra is just like, a, you know, an extended mindfulness practice. And sure, of course. But, you know, there are Saumya devatas and there are Ugra devatas. And some people start doing mantras to Ugra devata and they're like, 
life goes awry, whether it's psychosomatic or whatever your worldview is, nevertheless, tradition is saying, listen, we've got some, <laughs> we've got some, some nukes here that you can use. Um, <laughs> it's not going to be gentle. Right. And so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, you might, you know, like also in Western uh, Ayurveda, one thing I remember, there's an article by um, Francis Zimmerman called Flower Power Ayurveda. And one of the things that he, and it's, I think, was written in the 80s or so. Right. And and he said one of the things he notices is that at that time that Ayurveda and the West, um, they leave out all the really nasty things in the ther- therapy, for example, um, emesis, you know, where you're made to vomit. People in the West really hate this and they don't like doing it. And so you will not find it very often as part of sort of Western Ayurvedic treatments. You know, I'm not sure about nowadays, you know, but but then, you know, at that time, you sort of, you know, there's this sort of there's this gentleness that people expect from Ayurvedic treatments, you know, nice massages. And so if you get a massage, actually, an Ayurvedic massage in India at the sort of proper clinic, this is not a nice soothing experience. You know, this is on what they're trying to press this oil into your body you know it, it can be quite painful it's it's very full-on you know and all of these more violent elements of of the ayurvedic tradition these extreme these nukes you know they're they're kind of softened uh often in in the west and you know i'm saying in the west you know what's the west but you know outside of india basically you know that's the outside of south yeah, asia and, and interestingly enough there are strands i mean this 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 idea obviously as with everything in the scholarly world we can problematize everything Thing, and many things should be, particularly as it pertains to South Asia. But it, it's, you know, it's fascinating, you know, uh, because there are, there are, so f- for example, among some of my clients and students, they are, there's a few of them who are um, studying Ayurveda, but it's really interesting, you know, they are, they would call themselves Westerners. They're actually, all three of them are from America. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're studying, but they're studying with a, a, a fairly well-known Ayurvedic doctor named Dr. Vasat Lad. Yeah. Uh, and um, they're actually looking for what they perceive to be, you know, traditional. Um, uh, it's fascinating why they are drawn to him based on what they've said to me. I, I don't deal with Ayurveda in terms of practice. It's not something that I have skill in to teach. I have some basic knowledge, of course. Um, but they, they're drawn to him because they want the goods in their view they want the traditional indic gurukula paradigm but the 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 the, um the gold star for them probably why they're drawn to even the school and some other spaces is but how does that map on to what we know empirically to be true of the body you know how do we translate these things and i I find it utterly fascinating and i think we're in in an age of unprecedented uh syncretism in terms of holistic paradigms and the the ways in which uh, these paradigms can cross-pollinate each other. I mean, Vasant Lad was basically the, the earliest uh, teacher of Ayurveda in, in the U.S., maybe in the whole of, you know, outside of South Asia. And, and so he, he, he really started up this, this conversation. And I think he, he must have adapted what he was teaching to his audience, as we all do. Any teacher does this, you know, to... Absolutely to their students. So, you know, I think he must have gone through some, you know, period of adaptation as well, you know, sort of for, for what he's going to say and how he's going to say it and so on. So, yeah, I've heard a lot from students of Asant Lad that they really just love his teaching. There's charisma at play here as well, of course, you know, somebody who's just a really good 
teacher, somebody who reaches their audience. But yes, of course, it is it is a very syncretic kind of Ayurveda that they're being taught. But in India, you know, um, it's also syncretic and has been for uh, over a hundred years. There are two there are two truisms at the back of my brain about India, soil of India, mm-hmm. Bharata, India, civilizational India, like civilizational Egypt, not necessarily or Israel. Right? Yeah. So so. Um, uh, one is that it's a storied soil, and I use that metaphor for teaching on the Puranas. You may or may not be where I study um, narrative primarily, uh, but also it is bar none a syncretic soil. Brahmanism has so successfully folded in every every dominant voice that. The, 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 the Vedic uh, the Vedic traditions there and the voices that critique it are there and the Mahabharata is there and and it, it's so powerfully syncretic and really that's the power of if we could think of a Hinduism it's power the reason why Hinduism is the world's quote-unquote oldest living faith is because it's so good they never demolish the house right always renovated it's always you know we'll add this wing and this wing and this wing but nobody ever demolishes the room the room that came before exactly this is also true is it's a kind of a sentence that i've come across quite a lot in (laughs) india both and is it a or is it b yes the answer is always yes is it a or is it b yes the answer is yes um maddening for scholars uh but in a way i think um i'm I'm honoring the contradictions of life which is why there's, there's such richness from, from the syncretic soil. Tell us a bit about the connection between Ayurveda, popular in the West in a variety of ways, and another branch of knowledge that's very popular in the West, yoga. Sometimes yeah, so- called sister sciences, quote unquote. Tell us a bit about that, um, because I really want us to talk a little bit about a fascinating course that you're currently teaching as well, and in, in, in your your work as a teacher and, and all that. But to, uh, maybe let's bridge that with this, you know, yoga and Ayurveda. What's going on there? Sure. So yeah, I'm just teaching this as part of the yogic studies course, Yoga, Ayurveda, and Alchemy. Uh, and actually, today is the day that my lecture on yoga and Ayurveda dropped. So uh, it's uh, very timely for us to talk about this today. Of course, we planned that very carefully, didn't we? <laughs> very carefully, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so okay. Um, right. So apart from being an endologist, I, I also did some yoga teacher training uh, now, also two decades ago. And I, I the training was in, in the school that was inspired by TKV. Desikachar, and his style of yoga uh, was very strongly therapeutic. So it was very much about health benefits uh, for yoga. And so I, I tended to think of yoga as something that had something to do with health uh, for a long time, also before. Um, but as an Indologist, I, I couldn't quite see that, um, you know. Um, so, you know, I was studying Indology in the 90s, um, so, you know, at that time, we were looking at different yoga sources, Patanjali Yoga Shastra and so on, uh, where we don't see this, this health aspect uh, very greatly. But in recent years, there has been so much more uh, research. And of course, our knowledge has really grown about medieval forms of yoga and so on. So that now our, our entire picture has changed quite a lot in how we define yoga, how we understand yoga, or yogas, you know, the v- various strands of thought that are all called yoga, you know, and there's also that. So, um, Okay, so what I usually do is I differentiate between sort of yoga as sort of described in Ayurvedic sources, 
and Ayurveda or medicine as it occurs in sources on yoga or, you know, sources that are sort of mostly about yoga, some yogic practice. And when it comes to Ayurveda, there isn't a whole lot of yoga. There is a little, and basically it all comes down to the oldest of the Ayurvedic treatises, the so-called Charaka Samhita, the compendium of Charaka or the Charakas. And um, there is a chapter on the embodied person. And in this chapter on the embodied person, so what is a person, what are we made of, what are our constituents, and so on. And within that, it talks about also about liberation and how to achieve liberation. And there it sort of describes a kind of yogic path with eight parts, not exactly steps, but sort of eight parts. And you immediately think of Patanjala's, you know, the Ashtanga yoga, the eightfold, eight-limbed yoga, but it's not that. It's um, It does describe something similar, but it also describes something that's more to do with beneficial conduct and with... Um, sort of uh, um, developing mindfulness. And the word that I'm here calling mindfulness is smriti. So here we see quite a lot of uh, connections to Buddhist thought and sort of mindfulness meditations and so on, but also maybe to Vaisheshika thought. So this idea of attaining liberation through cognition, through, you know, arriving at a different kind of knowledge, uh, uh, through kind of mindfulness, but sometimes also just normal recollection practices. So you have, you know, the recollection of, you know, text or so would be also part of this path. Um, so that that is described in, in Charaka. There's an article about this actually written by my, my husband on, on the yoga of, of, uh, of Ayurveda. So that's all in this, this one chapter. And then there's another chapter that goes into the embodied person a little bit more, same work, just a few chapters on. And that, that sort of describes it a little bit more. But it's also things like, you know, be in the company of good people, you know, lead a good life, you know, be righteous, uh, you know, don't do upsetting things, don't, you know, violate ethics and so on, all of that. Is, is very much part of the sort of ethics of, of Charaka. And there, of course, we, we see a lot of connections again to, to Patanjali, uh, Patanjali's yoga path as well. So that would be yoga in Ayurveda because the later works actually, they kind of drop the topic. So, you know, we don't, it just doesn't get discussed anymore. Do you want me to go on or do you have some comments about this? You could feel free to go on. Yeah, I'm, I'm just listening. <laughs> So the second part then would be, you know, how do sources on yoga, how do they talk about medicine? And if they talk about medicine, is this medicine Ayurveda? You know, Ayurveda is not a trademarked word, right? So anything that's to do with medicine, health and so on could be called Ayurveda. So when I say Ayurveda, what I usually mean is the kind of medicine that is described in a particular body of literature, um, starting with the Charaka Samhita, right? So the boundaries are a bit fluid, you know, there could be other works, there could be a wider understanding of Ayurveda. Certainly when you come to definitions of Ayurveda in the works themselves, it's very, very wide, but I'm, I'm going with this more narrow one, right? And so when I look at sources with that in mind, I can see that um, in the early sources on yoga, like the Patanjali Yoga Shastra and so on, there's hardly anything on medicine. It's basically just that illness is defined as an obstacle to practice and therefore to liberation. But you don't really get a fully developed medicine that's saying, okay, and therefore this is what we do to stop illness developing, right? So that's, it's just not a big part of, of that way of thinking. Though, you know, there is this acknowledgement 
it's good to be healthy, to be able to follow this eightfold path, right? So, but when we go to the medieval sources, and there we then have these yoga texts that are quite different in nature that have these physical practices, uh, you know, well, breathing practices are old, of course, but, you know, also now suddenly these postures, asana and so on. And there now we get more of this idea of health and establishing health through breathing practices, establishing health through asana, through posture and so on. So that becomes, uh, you know, a bigger topic. It's never the main focus of these texts. It's always just like a side thing that's happening there. And the language used, the terminology used is Ayurvedic, but that's probably just because that's like the general public paradigm. You know, if we're talking about, you know, everybody would have known, you know, the three humors, wind, bile, phlegm. You know, every, that would have just been sort of, you know, sort of common knowledge. Like if I say I have a cold, you know what I mean, right? But we're, neither of us are biomedical doctors, you know. And in the same way, if a yoga text from the 12th century talks about vata, pitta, kapha, or so, it doesn't mean that they they are, you know, Ayurvedically trained, as it were. So it's that sort of use of Ayurvedic uh, terminology without actually taking recourse to Ayurveda, as it were. And in fact, in some texts, we have this sort of thing, well, these Ayurvedic physicians think they know it all, but look, they get ill and they die. We in yoga, we attain liberation, you know, so there's a sort of one-upmanship that we can sometimes uh, find. So certainly in the yoga texts, we find that they find that the yogic path is superior and distinct from Ayurveda. And then there are some, you know, exceptions, some works like the Ayurveda Sutra that Zoe Slatov has worked on, you know, where there's a real syncretism. There's also in the Yoga Yajna Valkya, there's a sort of yoga that uh, where breathing exercises are, uh, you know, uh, work on the doshas. And then, you know, you get the sort of more Ayurvedic way of dealing with things and so on. And then in very late works on yoga, you know, these sort of encyclopedias of yoga, then you have quite a bit of Ayurveda but usually juxtaposed with yoga, not really, not really integrated. And so this whole idea of yoga and Ayurveda as sister sciences, you know, that's, a, I think, you know, more of a recent development. And in fact, may go back to Vasantlad, uh, naming them as such, and Vasantlad and David Frawley and, um, you know, maybe Robert Svoboda and so on have all been, you know, offering ways of looking at yoga at a particular kind of yoga practice and, and you know, sort of integrating it with Ayurvedic knowledge, which is not without precedent, but, you know, which is sort of new in, in the way they sort of deeply integrate them. Fascinating. For those of you listening, uh, if you're interested in learning more about this topic, um, here's your public service announcement. <laughs> um, 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 uh, um, there is a course at Yogic Studies called Ayurveda Yoga and Alchemy. It is YS122. Uh, I'll put the, I'll include the, the link to the course in the podcast notes. So by all means, if you're interested, you can study directly uh, uh, with Dr. Wojastik, um on these fascinating topics. Um before we close, what I'd like to do is maybe gain a bit of your perspective about that enterprise itself. Um, online education, um, these bridges between public teaching and, and academics. And you know, what do you make of this? Is this new for you? Is this something that you're, you're very much in your wheelhouse? I would love your thoughts on enterprises such as yogic studies or, or just um, um, bridging the, the public academy divide 
Well, I, I kind of love it. I, I, I feel, uh, you know, with the pandemic, you know, we've all been online for ages now. And even, you know, university education has been, you know, over over online platforms. So education has changed for a time, at least uh, within universities as well. Um, but what I like about these fora is that, uh, you know, they reach a global audience. So we get so many different perspectives coming together, asking different questions and so on. And I think the thing that I really like is that everybody who's there really wants to be there. Uh, so, you know, sometimes in university education, you get students who, um, you know, ha had to take that course for credit, you know, and I don't have this problem often because my courses always sound interesting and there's kind of fringe topics and people are interested in the, in the thing. But but even so, you know, you get the sort of that they will be graded and, and you know, there's a sort of admin aspect to these courses and so on. So, you know, in in these online fora, whether it be yogic studies or just, you know, um, you know, open access talks or so. Um, I, I think it's just the, the audience seems to me maybe more motivated, more interested and so on. And I am conversely also just really interested to hear all these different voices, you know, from all over the world, you know, there's a, somebody in India, there's somebody in China, there's somebody in Slovenia or, you know, wherever, you know, to, to sort of add to this conversation, letting us, all of us get out of our little pockets our little communities our bubbles that we're in and so on it's still a bubble because it's people who are interested in india and interested in you know yoga and so on but it's just uh yeah it, it makes it all more diverse and more accessible i think um couldn't agree more i mean i i what was it 2010 i started um teaching at the university of toronto school of continuing studies and i think i'd done some public teaching before then, but then 2010 was really when I started teaching the public, uh, various yoga studios, as well as the, the U of T School of Continuing Studies. And, it, you know, it was like, wow, everyone's here because they want to be here. They're interested in the topic. They're responsible consumers. Uh, assignments are optional, but if you give them one, they'll do it because they want to do it. And it's an alternate universe to the motivation being uh, parental pressure, um, uh, the pursuit of gainful employment, uh, et cetera, self-esteem tied up in, into grades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so love continuing studies. And, and 2017, I started, uh, yeah, 2017, I started teaching online and it's hilarious. I defended my, my, my dissertation in 2015, late 2015. So I spent a year trying to figure out what to do. I shortlisted for some American jobs and that went fairly well, but they, they went with, um, which is probably no small feat with the University of Calgary <laughs> on, your, on your degree next to people coming from Chicago and, and Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. But anyhow, uh, the political landscape changed in America shortly thereafter. And I, I, I thought, let me find a way to support myself in Toronto. I remember viscerally, like, uh, I, I, I sort of uh, half mumbled that I was just so sheepish at a conference in 2017 to indicate to a specialist Peronic scholar that, yeah, I teach, I teach online, you know, <laughs> I teach online. And then three years later, I've got people knocking on my door. Hey, you know, can How you do what, it? <laughs> yeah, what is this thing you're doing? Um, How times have changed. <laughs> Anyhow, I've said too much, but I, I love, I absolutely love teaching, uh, continuing studies. I love teaching online, so I'm with you 100%. Is there anything else about your work, um, your teaching, your anything about the mysteries of Ayurveda that you'd like to share <laughs> before we close today? Do you know, I, I was just thinking of how 
depending on who's listening to the podcast, you know, are these people who are doing Indology anyway, South Asian studies, or are these a wider audience? And, and I think that there's sometimes not enough awareness of the Indian traditions in, in general, the history of Indian traditions. So, for example, medical history as a subject, right? It's a big subject academically, but usually excludes Asian forms of medicine. And, you know, not just Indian forms, but also Chinese medicine and so on. And I think it's really important to, to you know, raise awareness of these topics. So I always try and go and speak to other medical historians who don't know about India, or I go to, um, you know, the Society for um, Alchemy and Chemistry, who, you know, most of them are work on Western traditions and so on. And I think it's quite important to, to sort of speak with this wider audience and try try to reach them, make them aware that these traditions exist in India, um, you know, and, and in South Asia and so on, and to sort of, you know, have a conversation there too. Also, because I can learn a lot from them with their methodology of, you know, the kinds of questions that are being asked and so on, you know, so I think this is something that I I feel is quite important for, for my work, for my research, and just, you know, for being an academic in the world. One of the many things I've enjoyed about getting to know you and your work and your way of being is that is your appreciation for conversation, for folding in different perspectives. And it's so, so crucial. And that is both um, engaging the public and um, celebrating a variety of perspectives is exactly what's behind the podcast. So it was a pleasure speaking with you today about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure being here. For those of you listening, of course, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Dogma um, Wiastik, who is Associate Professor at the uh, Department of History, Classics and Religion at the University of Alberta, on her fascinating work featuring uh, Ayurveda, um, yoga, Indian alchemy, uh, etc. Uh, until next time, uh, keep well. Uh, keep contemplating the mysteries of medicine, um, modern and ancient, um, Western and Indic. Take care.